Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, September 17th, 2015, the Iran deal and Jeremy Corbyn edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England, joined as usual by my co-hosts Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hi there, Kristalia. Hello, Adam. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Uh, surviving. Good afternoon to you, Adam. Excellent. Onward. Our two topics this week. First, as it's confirmed that President Obama's nuclear deal with Iran will survive contact with Congress, we mull the merits of that deal and the politics that surrounds it in the United States. Second, the British Labour Party elected its most left-wing leader in as long as most of us can remember in the form of Jeremy Corbyn. How did that happen and what consequences might it have? In July, the Obama administration, alongside the other permanent members of the UN Security Council, concluded a deal with the government of Iran to lift international sanctions in exchange for a regime of monitoring designed to ensure it doesn't develop a nuclear weapon. This came after years of international tension and negotiation over the issue, which had led many to speculate the United States might ultimately use military force. This didn't go down great with Republicans, Hawks, the Israel lobby, and a variety of others who mounted a concerted push to kill the deal. This week, though, it became apparent that the president had the votes to block passage of a resolution opposing the deal in the U.S. Congress. He would previously said that he would veto any congressional efforts to bring the deal down. That means it's going to go into effect with U.S. support. So, is it a good deal? Will it last long term? What does it mean for the president's legacy? Scott, tell me some things. It's a very good deal at a number of levels. It's a very good deal for Obama because I think it gives him a, an achievement on one of the key areas in foreign policy he had pursued since 2009. I think it's a good deal on the specific issue of dealing with Iran's nuclear program. It allows Iran to develop a nuclear program for civil purposes. And contrary to all the scaremongering of factions who oppose the deal in the U.S. and of some factions who try to promote the supposed interest of Israel, it actually takes the oxygen out of the possibility of a militarized nuclear program. Look, if Iran was going to pursue that, and we can still debate that question as to whether they have the intention of doing that, this takes that possibility beyond any uh, likelihood for at at least a decade and probably well beyond that, 15, 20 years. This is a very strictly supervised, monitored, inspected deal It removes 98% of the uranium outside of Iran. The uranium which is left there cannot be enhanced to more than 90% enrichment, uh, which is what is needed for a military weapon. So without going into the technical details, Iran now becomes like any other member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty to which they are a member, unlike certain other states we could mention in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. hint Israel. (laughs) Now... The nuclear issue was never the be-all and end-all of what we were talking about here. The great myth has always been that we were talking about a defining issue regarding security and the future of the region, as well as U.S.-Iran relations. The nuclear issue was a pawn. It was a pawn which was used by the Iranians to promote their images of sovereignty, of defiance of the U.S., as well as other enemies. It was used by past U.S. administrations both to threaten Iran, specifically the Bush administration threatening war in past years, Mm -hmm. and to try to push back the Iranians in the Middle East. Now that you have a nuclear deal, you've got to deal with those issues in the Middle East. You've got to deal with the issue, for example, about the future of Iraq, 
one of Iran's neighbors. You've got to deal with the future of Syria, again, a country in which Iran is heavily invested. You've got to deal with the relationship between Iran and Hezbollah and Lebanon. You've got to deal with the Israel-Palestine issue, in which Iran uses to proclaim U.S. deception, perfidy, etc. Hmm. Now, that's the interesting question, because those who have opposed the deal, realizing they were going to lose the argument, have shifted to another ground. And they've said, look, Iran is going to get all this money when sanctions are lifted. They're going to get more than $100 billion, which is a bit of a misleading argument, but I'll leave that aside for the moment. They're going to take this money and they're going to immediately use it for their proxies and for their allies to create havoc throughout the Middle East. Conversely, those people who don't like the deal in Iran, and it still hasn't passed there, they're saying the Americans are going to use this deal to try to come back in and carry out regime change in Iran, having failed to do so in 2009 over the disputed presidential election, and they're going to use it to undermine us in the Middle East. So you've got to watch out for hardliners on both sides, on U.S. and Iran, that are going to now continue to say, well, we can't fight over the nuclear deal. Let's basically try to find confrontation elsewhere. So phase one's over. Let's move on to phase two. And that will happen after Obama's left office. I mean, I'm, uh, I don't imagine anyone's going to be enormously surprised to find out pretty favorable towards it, towards it as, as well. Um, and watching the debate's been interesting, I guess, had, uh, maybe would be the, the neutral way to put it before immediately descending rapidly from neutrality into straight out calling people out. Because it really is one of those issues that brings out the worst in uh, certain aspects of the, the American national security establishment, uh, particularly the kind of hawkish posturing by which, um, you know, I mean, uh, a couple of things. I mean, one, uh, so much of the advocacy for not doing this deal or rejecting this deal at this point has been fundamentally disingenuous. The proposed alternative that has been much discussed, which is, no, no, we don't want to do this deal with Iran. We should uh, keep the sanctions that have been crippling them in place uh, I- indefinitely, is basically a fantasy. You know, The reason why these sanctions became as effective as they did was because they had the support of uh, uh, Russia, they had the support of China, you had a genuinely concerted international effort to make Iran hurt. Why did they all agree to that? Well, to get them to the negotiating table in order to do some kind of a deal, uh, which is exactly what then happened. So the idea that having gone through all of that, you could then turn around and say, actually, no, this deal contains something short of the 100% maximal demands of the most uh, uh, neoconservative American. Sorry, we don't want it anymore. Could everybody please keep doing that? That's ridiculous. Or indeed that you could have got those sanctions in the first place if the premise was let's put them on and just keep them on forever until utter capitulation unfolds. So, you know, one part of the counter-narrative is just uh, magical thinking uh, uh, or conveniently cynically invoked impossibility, depending on how you look at it. And then secondly, the, the kind of the, the presence of either total posturing, which is to say people saying that they uh, want things that imply war when they don't really want it, or attempting to avoid the appearance of advocating war when, in fact, that is the logical consequence of what they propose and what they, what they would want. You know, fundamentally, if you look at the way that the, the goalposts keep getting moved and the way that these uh, uh, demands... Uh, well, 
as you said, the, the way in which they've shifted what it is that they say is wrong with the deal at each point that, uh, that it seems like it does solve something, you say, well, yes, but it doesn't also solve this. It doesn't solve Iran's support for various other actors. It means that Iran will be able to continue to behave badly in other areas that the deal is nothing uh, to do with. You know, and, and that is true. The deal does not deal with everything, uh, and it does not give the United States 100% of what it would have wanted if it had uh, a blank piece of paper on which to write, which is in the nature of deals, because they tend to involve somebody else's consent and therefore some of the other interests of those, of those people. The only way to get complete capitulation uh, on this and all of the other issues is effectively to topple the government of Iran and replace it with something else. Obviously, that requires the use of military force, and post-2003, the suggestion that you get rid of a troublesome Middle Eastern government and replace it with something much better through the use of military force doesn't have quite the same level of purchase with the general public as it might have done previously. So the impression has been created that somehow it's possible to get an outcome that good without the use of force on that scale. And again, I find that fundamentally disingenuous. They're either trying to start a chain of events that leads to that without being honest and upfront about that's what they're doing, or they're making it sound like they would somehow... Uh, get to that outcome without the use of a violent regime change, which why the Iranians would agree to that, I don't, I don't know. Separate to the debate over the threat of nuclear weapons in Iran, I think something that many kind of lay people, not so politically informed, think has legs is, is the issue that you pointed to a little bit earlier, Scott, about this frees Iran up with a lot of money to play more games in the Middle East, and that specifically refers to funding extremist mm. organisations and so on and so forth. I thought you meant football. Yeah. <laughs> and that, <laughs> ISIS football team. I'm sure they probably have, well, probably they, have a, they, have a, they have a subcommittee trying to work out if it's idolatry technically, probably, or uh, uh, other such technicalities. I wonder but... if they do subcommittees. <laughs> I don't doubt it. <laughs> Back to the point. There's webs within webs here because, as you know, these issues in the Middle East that we're talking yeah. about, whether we're talking about Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, these go back decades. And to simply reduce it to a soundbite, as Adam was referring to in terms of the rhetoric, which is Iran supports terrorism mm. or the United States is an imperialist power on the other side, you know, it sort of tries to sweep aside that complexity and get simplistic. Let's deal with a couple of facts to start off with first. Yeah. The first is on the question of the process of the sanctions removal and what we're talking about in terms of rhetoric. The procedure to remove the sanctions is not, despite some rhetoric, say from Iran's supreme leader, that on the very day that Iran is declared to be in compliance with the deal, which is estimated to be in mid-December, all the sanctions go at once and all the money comes flowing in. Mm. The sanctions system is so complex, it takes time to remove measures. So for example, although you won't see this in the press, it's hard to summarize this. One of the big sanctions that really hurt the Iranians is when the European Union in July 2012 said, look, we're no longer going to allow companies to insure tankers carrying Iranian oil. Mm -hmm. That contributed to almost a 40% drop in their, their oil exports. Now, it takes time for an insurer to come back in and say, okay, now we're going to consider which tankers we're going to insure. We're going to have to go through, sign the contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The chances are that an increase in Iranian oil exports, even if you get a December start date, which says they're in compliance with the deal, that the sanctions probably won't, the Iran oil exports won't significantly increase for about six months after that, until mm -hmm. mid-2016. That's one example. Mm -hmm. Secondly, 
Iran has got serious economic problems from a combination of mismanagement, corruption, as well as sanctions. Mm -hmm. A lot of that money that is freed up, they've got to put it back into their economy. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, even if you thought they were going to get this huge windfall, the oil is at its lowest price in many, many months. It is more than 60% down on the price where it was in a year ago. Mm -hmm. So Iran has to recalculate its budget Whereas last year it said we expect $100 per barrel of oil. It's now going to have to recalculate this year, expecting $45 to $50 per barrel. Now, <laughs> yeah. George, George Osborne, you think you have problems. You think uh, you got problems. So you add all of that up, that. and this supposed megalith, which is going to be Iran sweeping through the region. First of all, there's practical reasons why it's not going to happen. But let's talk about the wider issues which are there. Look, I've got real problems with Iran's support for Bashar al-Assad. And... And specifically, I mean, naysayers would say that already they've freed up money again for Syria, for Assad. Right. So, you know, it's not a long draw. What do you pull? Bow, string to no. pull. What's the thing that Threads? you pull? No, the more aggressive one. You know, <laughs> a long bow to draw? Something like this. I have never heard that expression <laughs> yeah, before, but I'm visualising it. Maybe, maybe it works. Is that an Australian no, thing? There are, I see, as I sit here across the table, I see one, two, three heads shaking. It's a thing. Maybe it's just something you've liked to say for a while I now. I will find it for you all. It is a thing. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you know. Whether it's a quick-firing bow yeah. <laughs> or whether it's a, one that Iran can consider putting injecting more resources, military and economic, behind Assad. Yeah. They can consider doing that. But here's the point. Had there not been a nuclear deal, Iran would still consider doing that as part of their strategy to kick back against the West. They probably actually would have doubled down on their bet because the hardliners would have said, look, we're not going to get a nuclear deal. We're going to go after the American state. Now you open up the space where you basically come in, and this is where I do have problems with Obama with a strategy. You draw a firm line with the Iranians. You say, we do, we do not want continued support of Assad or the Assad regime. He's got to leave power. You come in and draw that firm line, and it's far easier, contrary to the supposed received wisdom, to draw that firm line with the Iranians with the nuclear issue off the table mm -hmm. than if it was still there. Mm -hmm. The Iranians can't exploit it to kick back. So there's sort of two, to bring this to a pause and to get wiser minds in on this, there's sort of two different schools of thought that I think are too simplistic. There's one which says, because of the deal, the Iranians are going to be a menace throughout the Middle East. You have to come in. You have to confront them everywhere. You've got to basically go back to where we were under the Bush administration and we're dealing with the axis of evil. Don't agree with that. On the other hand, the idea is the U.S. can now cooperate with Iran against the Islamic State mm -hmm. in Syria, in Iran, with the menace of extremism and terrorism. It's all sweetness and light. Don't agree with that either. Mm -hmm. You have to go back to where we are, supposedly as political scientists, and say you've got to go into hard, difficult negotiations on these issues, and you have to be firm. Not to go to war with the Iranians, but basically say there are certain lines of behavior that we don't think are acceptable and we don't think you should be freed up to do this because of the nuclear deal. But at this point, are we talking about an Obama government doing that or are we talking about a successor government doing that? I think it has doing to go... More. Going back to the table and discussing these... I think it has, to be, it has to go beyond Obama. Now, that's a point I'd have to make because there's another myth that's sort of come up, which is in, and, and we've sort of fallen into it for obvious reasons, which is 
U.S.-Iran. But as Adam mentioned at the very start, this was a negotiation which involved the members of the Security Council, Russia, China, the European, Britain, France, and Germany. Discussions with Iran on regional issues are going to have to include all these countries as well. So let's take the European countries. They're very keen on getting Iranian business, on putting foreign investment into Iran. Absolutely understand that. Absolutely support that. But European countries at the same time should take firm lines over the questions of Syria, Iraq, dealing with the Yemen issue where the Saudis are creating hell Mm -hmm. and where the Iranians have sort of taken a step back, etc. Well, I mean, I guess that that alludes to to one of the things that's you know, slightly weird about the international psychology of the situation that, you know, to listen to some of the Republican hawks talking, you would think that Iran was the single uh, uh, cause of international terrorism, the problems of the Middle East, etc., that it was like uh, the, the, the international security and Islamist militancy version of Goldman Sachs, the vampire squid with, with, with its tentacles everywhere. Uh, whereas, you know, there are the problems of the Middle East are deep, profound, multifaceted. The Iranians as an apparently rational state that, uh, that at least uh, calculates its interests in the mortal realm and attempts to pursue them uh, is, uh, I would suggest, far from the worst actor in in the region, and therefore, you know, the the idea that uh, you would decide to set your face against Iran in any and all uh, theaters on every issue simply by virtue of uh, some 1979 uh, invoked standoff that you know needs to continue with this generation in this life and the next. It just seems to lack a kind of perspective. You know, it's, I don't know if it's a generational thing in terms of the U.S. foreign policy makers involved. I don't know if it's just because it's become a kind of path-dependent symbolic issue that people use to signify how they how they uh, want to stand on that international security more broadly. But there just seems to be a certain kind of reflexive extreme uh, quality to the to, to the rhetoric about the necessity of opposing Iran that gets that or, gets used. And it's, I mean, throwing into that, it's convenient to attack Iran when you can't attack Saudi Arabia. Mm. Absolutely right. And I mean, there's a curious combination here of of assertiveness and evasion. And the assertiveness, if we talk about it from that generalized American standpoint, is, you know, we we just go in and if we deal with this sponsor of terror, we solve everything in the Middle East if we take this really hard line with them. Well, the evasion comes in two respects. I mean, first of all, it ignores other countries which raise serious issues, such as the Saudis, Mm -hmm. about their policies. And again, I refer to the Yemen crisis, Mm -hmm. which is going on Mm -hmm. right now. But secondly, it's an evasion of that a lot of the causes of instability are local causes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the easy way out was to say, well, it must be Iran who is sponsoring Hamas yeah. in, you know, uh, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Well, no. In fact, <laughs> the paradox is the Israelis had more to do with the creation of Hamas than Iran did. But beyond that, let's recognize that Hamas is a local group which is dealing with a crisis for decades mm-hmm. that has to do with Palestinians displaced from their land, displaced from their livelihood. Blaming Iran means you don't have to deal with that fundamental issue. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, Iran is a state that has interests that uh, conflict with those of the United States in many cases. It pursues those interests. That's inconvenient to the United States in much the same way as the United States' pursuit of its interests is often inconvenient to Iran. And it's only a very particular kind of foreign policy mindset that assumes that that is somehow... Um, uh, 
not the usual basis of international relations in some ways, but some kind of strange anomalous situation that needs to be uh, resolved in a fundamental and lasting way by effectively the uh, the complete capitulation of, of, of the other side. You know, I, d- I don't think that Iran represents such a peculiar and unusual existential threat to the survival of the United States that one should take it entirely outside of that frame of analysis of states and state interests in the way that, that often seems to be to be suggested. The one thing I will I will say uh, before we wrap this up, because uh, I think producer Connor would like us to, uh, to draw a line under this topic in a minute, is that, uh, you know, this episode of the discussion of whether or not the deal should be approved by Congress, disapproved by Congress, etc., really put some of the individuals and indeed the process of the U.S. Congress when it comes to foreign policy under a bright spotlight, and it was some seriously unedifying stuff. If anyone has the time uh, to, to, to be horrified as a matter of recreational choice, I recommend they look up the hearings that took place in front of the Senate committee to discuss this deal with uh, John Kerry and with uh, Eric Muniz, the, the, the energy secretary, I believe, who was involved in these deals, who is, um, I believe, a physicist by background, and that led, of course, to, 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 uh, uh, to uh, uh, exactly what you would expect in a situation like that, which is uh, a bunch of uh, professional politicians lecturing him about the technical details of the, uh, of the arrangement that have been reached. But there were a whole variety of, uh, of senators um, who, at best, saw fit to use the opportunity to reel off uh, prepared remarks in a grandstanding way, and at worst engaged in their sociopathically ignorant and belligerent rhetoric towards their uh, towards their government colleagues, uh, with, with a view to um, making points in the public square for their own advantage. But uh, uh, and I particularly recommend Ted Cruz for your yes. attention when you, when you watch it. But if you want to see. Uh, uh, an embodiment of a kind of narcissistic, grandstanding irresponsibility uh, 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 on the part of, uh, of, of political actors who you would think ought to have the statute to know better. I really couldn't recommend <laughs> recommend it to you more. If, if on, on aesthetic grounds, if nothing else, it's really quite a watch. But also, there were some beautiful shutdowns uh, by the energy minister. I think afterwards that that were that were edifying and and satisfying. I think. Mm. Um, before we do close. I wanted to ask you, you touched on the possibility of, Scott, you touched on the possibility of uh, divisions within Iran as a result of this. And I also noticed that Hassan Khomeini has uh, has surfaced or resurfaced as a possible contender for power. What's going on? My internal knowledge is not great. Is he related to... Grandson. (laughs) Right, okay. I I don't uh, know Ayatollahs had, but... uh, Oh, yes. Uh, I think, to bring it back from insight to ignorance, I think there's two points. Mm. And the first, I think, adds, I hope, the insight in terms of complexity and the challenge uh, by talking... By picking up Cristal's point, there isn't a single Islamic Republic. There isn't a single Iran. Mm. There are multiple Irans now. Uh, Iran right now is in the big, its biggest political battle since the mass protest over the, the disputed, some would say fraudulent, 2009 presidential election, in that you have a block of politicians and activists, and this includes the current president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, the former president, Hashemi Rasanjani, and the grandson of the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, the man who founded the Islamic Republic. And they're trying to, to carve out political space and to, get, to gain power against other factions within the regime. They're trying to open up political and social space for more dialogue, more discussion inside Iran. They're trying to engage with outside powers over Middle Eastern issues, including the Saudis. They're trying to push back hardliners. Now, the hardliners are not going to take that 
lying down. And indeed, we're in the middle of a fight, which I won't go into detail right now, but there's been some major, major shots fired over the distribution of power within the system, especially in advance of very important elections next February, Mm -hmm. including for Parliament. Now, if you simply take the simplistic approach that it's a single Iran, that they're this menace, that this nuclear deal is a sellout to them, the outcome of taking that line will be is that you actually unwittingly will support the hardliners. The deal will collapse or it will be crippled. Iran will not be able to have economic recovery. President Rouhani will be kicked aside. And those who are allied with him, such as Hassan Khomeini and such as some reformists, will be pushed aside as well. That's what happens. Now, as a hardliner in the U.S. Suits, suits the hardliners in the U.S. down yeah, to the ground. As then, a hardliner, yeah. then they get to have uh, nobody compromises on anything glare off for the next right. generation or, or, or right. longer. You get to bring the confrontation back around. Yeah. Which brings me to my second point. It is to the credit of the Obama administration. It is the credit of the Obama administration that against, I think, many people's expectations, they got above the white noise in the States that working with give credit to partners in Europe to Russia, to China, that they were able to get above the lobbying, the backbiting, the the near insanity of the remarks to get this deal through, mm-hmm. is to their credit. Um, I have relatives who even this week are hitting me up on Facebook, uh, uh, proclaiming the, the wisdom of the freshman senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, who shot to fame, who basically said, Iran's going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Here we go. Well, no. Tom Cotton's an idiot, and sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad. Scott's gone on the record. Scott's on the record with that. Um, and, and the more that Obama can administration can hold the line uh, against such idiocy without acting the way I have, great power to them. The challenge is they need to do that beyond the nuclear issue. Mm. They need to do it beyond the nuclear issue. They need to show backbone and decisiveness, not in either caving into Iran or confronting them on every occasion. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that's going to be, interestingly, an even more difficult challenge than getting the deal through was. And, and you know, I, I think it's hard to deny that this shows up as a, as a gold star, at least in terms of a formal achievement uh, for the Obama administration, because let's forget, in 2008, when he was running, he was the, the one who said, I would negotiate with the Iranians at a time when that wasn't seen as necessarily the wise thing to say in public. He then made it a priority. Uh, he persevered with it in spite of events that got in the way of really being able to do much for several years. Uh, he's managed to get the deal actually to stick in spite of all of the waves of hostility and opposition that the Israel lobby could could bring to bear. So uh, uh, even setting aside, I suppose, the, the, the merits of the substance, simply being able to see through to completion something as difficult as that mm-hmm. over such a long period of time, it does speak well to the kind of no-drama Obama long-term focus that he, that he that he had a reputation for at the beginning mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly going to be a major CV item in the future. Anyway, before Connor pops the blood vessel, let's, uh, let's finish this item up. Okay, let's do number of the week. Uh, where we uh, pick a news story and attempt to thinly tie it to a, uh, a number for the purposes of statistical artifact. Kristala, yes. what interesting things have you found in the world that are number-related? So may I remind you that, uh, Adam, that... Just, and just I said me. that with a very Everybody else, you can, you, you, you can chill <laughs> you guys out. guys relax. But I am being reminded. <laughs> 
for that last week my number of the week was or last time my number of the week was 10. This time my number of the week is again 10 related to the same issue. I am Your happy number to isn't going to be 10 for the whole rest it of the It may well be I might make so. an effort to see if I can keep getting to finding <laughs> the stories of that the have week. 10. Crystal is <laughs> 10 of the week. <laughs> so my 10 relates to a liberal party room coup. Which to be Australian Liberal Party? Uh, yes, an Australian the, the, the non-liberal Liberal Party. Uh, let me, let me, let me, let me, let the Conservative um, Liberal Party. Let me finish because I'm very excited about this. So last week I said that there was a by-election in a small West Australian um, seat, which meant that it could well topple um, Prime Minister Tony Abbott. And guess what? On very infrequent occasions am I able to be right and lorded over the world. Today I can say um, that on Monday night the Liberal leadership, there was a Liberal leadership ballot where Malcolm Turnbull, political veteran Malcolm Turnbull, defeated Tony Abbott by 10 votes. Boom. Uh-huh. Um, so Tony Abbott is no longer Australia's Prime Minister. Now, this is very exciting on a personal note because, because he was all around uh, repulsive, but may not be particularly great news uh, in terms of moving Australia to a more progressive political standpoint because it might in fact mean that in the seat of Canning the, the Liberal Party is re-elected. Mm. So it did, I do think that it, that it caused a, lib, um, a leadership change, but I think it's come at a cost. It may well come at a cost for um, mm. the betterment of Australia. So those who decided to get rid of him are onto something if they think it'll improve their chances I to, have, think to have him gone. We'll see, we'll see. This weekend is the by-election and we'll see mm. what effect it has both on the by-election and on the, which was supposed to be an indication of kind of sentiment about in Australia about liberal later labor divisions. Is it just me or does this sort of craziness seem to happen every 5 minutes in Australia? It's between the general elections every 3 years and the constant fratricide uh, between uh, party leaders who are in government between those times. It, it feels like there's a new prime minister every minute. So so there's a new prime minister roughly every year and a half or 2 years since the removal since the, the An Apple product of... salesman could not be happier <laughs> with the rate of replacement. It's true, it's true. Um, since John Howard uh, left, there have been something like five prime ministers. Um, and, yeah, roughly every two years. And the funny, I mean, the joke is that the, the Liberal Party um, complained that Labour couldn't keep a prime minister for longer than a year and a half because it, it couldn't keep a prime minister. Oh, the shame. <laughs> the embarrassment, the incompetence. And so there are some lovely memes, Labour memes on uh, Twitter going around where, where Labour is reminding the Liberal Party that they also can't keep their house mm. in order. So, yeah, no, there's something with Australian politics and lacklustre leaders at the moment. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't wish to take this to the level of personal attack, but what the hell? Um, when I paved the way for you. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I will admit that I don't pay minute and detailed attention, but Tony Abbott, and it's a tough league, mm-hmm. uh, has, has struck me as one of the least intellectually prepossessing political leaders I think I've ever seen uh, he makes uh, uh, George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan seem like an advanced philosophy seminar mm-hmm. at Harvard when you, when you hear him engage. It's a particularly amazing TV interview that he did some years ago 
where he's asked the question on camera, doesn't know the answer, and rather than saying something evasive, simply stays standing, (laughs) nodding weirdly at the camera in total silence until the journalist is almost so weirded out by his behaviour that he decides he needs to draw things to a close. I think he used the phrase, Tony, you're not saying anything (laughs) at some point. uh, Again, YouTube tip there, really worth seeing. It's uh, Uh, it's not usual. There is soon to be a collection amassed of, of Tony Abbott moments, including the time not not long ago when he tried to offer Prince Philip a knighthood. Yes. And he, and he said, sorry, thy drawers are just full of them. Yes. No, no more room uh, to, put, to put knighthoods here. My, my wife has said if I buy one more. Uh, I'll be out. <laughs> exactly. So Tony Abbott, uh, uh, See you, later. Uh, uh, you will be sorely missed. Mm-hmm. Cheerio, Scott. Hey, would you like to uh, to come, not to praise, but to bury any uh, uh, political pygmies? No, I already look forward to Christelle's next number of the week, which will be the uh, the number of the majority in the by-election, <laughs> which will either hail a liberal yeah. revival... We're just going to follow that constituency's political trajectory over the course of the next year. I have a much bigger number, 397,800. Oh, this is not going to be a good number. Which is the number of retweets of a message from um, Barack Obama in a good week for him, uh, which was sent out regarding the situation of a 14-year-old named Ahmed Mohammed, a schoolboy from Texas, hardworking schoolboy, but one who probably would have remained away from the public limelight had the authorities decided to detain him because of a clock he brought to school for show-and-tell. Unfortunately, the authorities did not recognize this was a clock. They looked at the circuit board and decided that it was so well done, it must indeed be a bomb, because if someone named Ahmed was coming into a school in Texas with wires, what else could he be bringing in other than a terrorist device? So, fine, that great logic meant that Ahmed was having to suffer the indignity of an effective arrest and possibly rendition to some country around the world for further questioning until the case actually came out into the public and more sensible minds realized that perhaps this was a bit of an overreaction. So the positive side of this was, in fact, uh, the message from President Obama, which said, cool clock. Would you like to bring it to the White House? I wish more kids like you were taking up science. It's a tribute to the greatness of America. Mm. So if he really is a terrorist playing the long game, he's, uh, he's really nailed it, right? It's all coming together. Now, certain right-wingers, and I'm looking at you, Ann Coulter and Pamela Geller, are still thinking that perhaps this is a devious plot, but... Not only Barack Obama, but for example, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook tycoon, have also hailed uh, Ahmed as being the brighter side of American ingenuity and technology rather than destructiveness. And so 397,800 retweets is a tribute to a more positive outcome to what started off as a very, very negative story from my homeland. Mm. Good. Well, my number of the week is zero, uh, which is the number of rules that the Standards Authority says were broken uh, uh, by uh, Malcolm Rifkind, former uh, uh, former Conservative 
uh, Foreign Secretary and Jack Straw, former Labour Party Foreign Secretary, uh, in the course of a story that broke last uh, last year in which they were uh, supposedly involved in the uh, desperate effort to set themselves up for lucrative, cushy lobbying positions post-retirement uh, post, uh, from Parliament. They were filmed by the Channel 4 programme, Dispatches, uh, and this obviously was considered at best undignified, at worst against, uh, against rules, um, uh, and brought their parliamentary careers to a close under a rather, uh, rather large shadow. Uh, and this is one of those stories where, uh, when it reaches this point, you always think it's a particular phrase that comes up quite a lot in these kind of stories. You know, someone the statement's put out is "no rules were broken," uh, and then everyone is supposed to go back and look at what happened and went, "Well, this was terribly uh, uh, presumptuous of the media to ruin two such respectable men's careers uh, when they did nothing wrong." However, <laughs> there is a second conclusion you can reach, which is to say maybe there should be a couple of rules uh, that prevent them from doing it, because on the face of it, uh, the idea that you can be a member of parliament with a history in government uh, who is, uh, while you aren't even out of the seat that you're in, having meetings with people in which you basically say, sure, I know a lot of people in government positions, and because of my contacts, I can get you in to talk to any of those about whatever you want any time you like, because access is what I do, uh, and that this is apparently... Uh, a cornerstone of how our, our political system operates, respectively, when the rules are in place. Um, you know, I don't. You don't have to be a private eye subscriber uh, to, to 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 really feel like this is one of the biggest problems with our political system. The fact that uh, I suppose everyone involved in it does feel that it is uh, not only appropriate but almost a duty uh, to make sure that you can monetize uh, your time in public life when you leave it, and that the rules. Uh, have no problem with that, whether you're in the civil service or in politics, the revolving door between having positions where you can disperse resources and then having a position where you lobby those who disperse those resources after you've left. This is a perfectly fine thing to do. Call me censorious, but I disapprove of that sort of thing. And uh, uh, although we should emphasise that no rules were broken, uh, (laughs) some people might still uh, take a moment to think whether or not they're happy that this is how our former foreign secretaries choose to uh, choose to live out their post-office life. While emphasizing to the many thousands of lawyers listening to our podcast <laughs> that this was alleged, I repeat, alleged, <laughs> a, alleged peddling of influence, it was alleged peddling of influence, let me neatly tie this up by saying that said Jack Straw, a former foreign secretary, has been at the forefront of efforts to get British businesses into the Islamic Republic oh. of Iran as sanctions are being lifted and relations are put on a normal basis to bring uh, benefits to everyone, including allegedly, allegedly himself. Uh, just want to make that clear for the record. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. In the true style of Tony Blair. <laughs> and no rules, we repeat, no rules were in fact broken. So it's all fine, because <laughs> that's the main thing. On September the 13th, Jeremy Corbyn was elected with 59.5% of the vote as the new leader of the Labour Party. That was a position vacated by Ed Miliband in May after the general election produced a surprise majority for the Conservatives and therefore a disappointing defeat for the Labour Party. 
Corbyn's been an MP since 1983, always on the back benches, a serial rebel against the Labour whip in both government and opposition, and one of the most consistently left-wing members of the party. To say this is unexpected, at least by the standards of about three months ago, I think it would be something of an understatement. He began the race as a 100-to-1 outsider, and he only cleared the bar to get on the ballot uh, when uh, opponents loaned him some of their signatures from among MPs to get him uh, on the uh, to get his nomination papers completed. Wait, uh, wait, say that again. They lo- they loaned him what? Some of the uh, supporters that they had in Parliament. Oh, they got them to sign his nomination papers because they didn't really support him, but to get him on to the nomination papers. Well, they just t- no, they, they didn't sign the other people's nomination papers, but they just they were supporters of other candidates. But they were told, sure, sign his so that he can get on the ballot paper because it's only fair. We should we should uh, we should have him say his silly things, and then we can beat him soundly, and the party can move on united. Look how uh, that backfired. Yeah, uh, had that work out for you, geniuses. Um, because that's, I mean, that's part of the issue, of course, the, 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 this idea that it's going to be difficult for him because he isn't supported by uh, MPs. But, of course, the rule is there to, to make sure you don't get on the ballot paper unless MPs support you. So it seems a bit stupid to do that and then uh, come back and complain about it later. Uh, imagine doing something stupid, regretting it, and then complaining about it later. Politicians never do that. Anyway, to continue with this important pre-prepared introduction, a fan of redistribution, <laughs> nationalisation, and trade unions at home. Abroad, he's anti-nuclear weapons, anti-NATO, and sceptical of the EU. Though how much of all that will translate into party policy remains to be seen. So, refreshing new politics, uh, brazen electoral suicide, what does the rival Corbynism uh, if that is a word we are now to take it as, as common Coins. parlance, as a force on the scene, mean. Cristala, uh, counterpo- counterpart, uh, counterpointing it to uh, the Conservative Liberal Party <laughs> in Australia. Um, we have the Radical Labour Party in the UK. Yes. Not so uh, radical. How, how does this tickle your sensibilities? What I quite like about the fact that I'm the first person to comment about this is that I'm the person who has been the least in England the least amount of time. So having been here a grand total of two and a half years now and not really following British politics until very recently, I will say that I trolled Google fairly recently Mm -hmm. Um, and what I found about uh, our relaxed revolutionary leader uh, led me to some questions so people in the press are saying things like does it signal a decade of conservative leadership and will the Lib Dems benefit from the Labour the impending Labour split or current Labour split Um, and importantly can which is what Adam is alluding to can he connect his political style with some form of content right Mm -hmm. but further than that I think there are a couple of issues and correct me because I may well be wrong um so so we recently saw uh that the conservative party has put out some pretty pretty uh, base level propaganda against Jeremy Corbyn. Mm, it's up there with the red eyes on Tony Blair, I think, in its subtlety. Very, very much so. And I think that while it's, it's uh, let's not call it subtle, um, and, and, and not uh, dignified either, I think that what it, what it signals is that the, the Conservatives are definitely looking to destroy not Corbyn but Labour. Um, and I think that what they may well manage to do, so you've got so you've got a contradiction, and that is that fine, he is very very far removed from New Labour, right? And in terms of policy and content and style, but um, 
he's overseen since in the last week since he's since he's taken his position labor supports up some 30,000 people in terms of membership right mm. so he's got some public support among kind of hard hard labor supporters and some sympathizers what i think he's going to struggle to do and what i think is dangerous for labor is that what happens to the undecided middle so what happens to the people who are afraid of terrorism who don't like the fact that he didn't sing the british national anthem who don't like the idea that he is so very radically left um and who feel insecure and who feel that the whole security debate is one that is genuine and one that speaks to them so uh, is the conservative party going to be able to 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 really really um harness this leader and where he stands and really cash in on those that kind of middle ground and turn them center right. So that's one thing. Um I also think I mean I have radical left sympathies in parts and some of the things that he says appeals to me the the austerity stuff particularly some mm. of it is you is, and most economists yeah, which yeah, is well, interesting as a sort of counterpoint to how wildly radical it's supposed to be these days there's, there's an irony in the fact that it's supposedly the the the, the outmoded utopian socialists who are in favor of what all mainstream economics would seem to suggest is the right thing to do yep for different purposes though to different ends um but yes that's a good point but i think what he's done leaving that to one side is communicated a sense of optimism um and i think that uh, i think that he does appeal to a lot of people what i wonder is that whether he's a leader in the vein that labor should be looking for for the long term and I, and what I would have loved to have seen and I don't think exists in labor is someone who is younger, more dynamic, more socially networked, not of the young dynamic and Eton Oxbridge set, but mm. someone who really speaks very intelligently across a number of concerns that people have every day. And I think that Corbin in some ways is speaks to people but in other ways is so uh, I mean from what I understand from what I can see many of his positions haven't changed for 30 years right mm. he is a signpost not a weather thing yeah. in that regard it is so to say <laughs> and so I mean there are possibly whole... a slightly weather beaten signpost <laughs> I think he's writing that out on the kind of I don't know some people find that charming I mm. have learned um but so so I guess I wonder you know is he a leader for now um and how mm. much damage is that going to do and that sits alongside feelings that i have that some of the stuff that he says is really relevant and really important mm. yeah his aesthetic is very 1983 yeah. uh, certainly and and the the tone and phrasing of some of the issues does feel uh, very very much transplanted from that period how, however relevant it is and the policies seem like it's a mixed bag i mean some of the kind of the overarching headline is that he's hard left yeah. that he's wildly out there and some of it seems like it is that and some of it seems less so you know for example he's in favor of public ownership of the railways yeah. public ownership of electricity which you know if you were a french 
socialist yeah. or even just a member of the socialist party would be completely uh, every day in fact yeah. one of the largest uh, companies in our deregulated electricity environment uh, market is the French state electricity company um, you know and, and the the anti-austerity stuff I guess against the tone of, of, of things at the moment but you know it's not like he's talking about uh, setting up agrarian communes you know he's, he's basically yeah. talking about uh, reinflating the economy through uh, th- through uh, macroeconomic policy so it's not crazy some of the other stuff especially the foreign policy stuff, I yeah. can't say I'm crazy about. I mean, being against, being against membership of NATO, being in yeah. favour of unilateral nuclear disarmament, I'm, I would be reluctant to put an X next to that in a ballot paper. But I, don't, I think we're already seeing that uh, a lot of his senior colleagues are prioritising getting that out of uh, the way as any possible party policy, and he seems inclined to bend on it because he, he thinks other things are somewhat more important. So we'll see how... Uh, how that goes. But I think Paul Krugman wrote, wrote a good uh, piece uh, this week, which I think we all, you know, doubt to some extent the electoral viability of this. We're going we're gonna, to, you know, we're going to find out. The theory is, as it always is with people in his position, that there is a secret hidden electorate that uh, wouldn't normally vote or wouldn't normally be inspired, who will be inspired by this. Uh, the counterpoint to that is that people who knock on doors in Essex and yeah. other such places during general elections say that they didn't tend to primarily hear from the people that weren't voting for them then that it was just a lack of uh, uh, fiscal uh, looseness that was the, that, that was the main issue. So there's going to be a, a, an experiment to run to see whether that works. We many of us have doubts, but I think Krugman's point was this is not so much about a turn to the left amongst the Labour Party membership, although it it is that. It's also about the collapse intellectual yeah. moral uh, uh, in so many ways of the Labour moderates. Yeah. You know, I genuinely think that if there was a candidate in that contest who seemed charismatic, who seemed credible, who had a program, who seemed to believe in that program, who was saying, sure, we all believe in these things, but we need to pursue a strategy of building a coalition large enough to win a general election, uh, show some moderacy in how we phrase our objectives, that they would have had a pretty good chance. The problem was the three candidates who were supposedly in this position just inspired no confidence in anyone that they were going to win a general election. Uh, They did not seem uh, prepossessing. They seemed like... um, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, university debating society candidates mocked up as Blairite politicians without the stature, without the capacity. And as a result, I think a lot of people felt like the choice they had was to uh, elect someone who was going to spend five years hectoring them about how they shouldn't believe what they believe, uh, telling them to support things that they probably would prefer not to support, and then get tonked at the next general election anyway, which is the worst of both worlds. Whereas people have decided that with Corbyn, well, if we're going to not win, probably in any case, we might as well not win while saying things that we actually think are right and are in line with with, with our values, um, which is, you know, perhaps not the most uh, strategically wise yeah. logic. And, you know, it may well redound to the Conservatives' benefit because, you know, there is clearly, and I don't think this is a, a new observation, uh, a distinction between the membership political parties and the general yeah. election electorate. So when you get people who say, oh, but he's won this election or like look at the rallies that he's uh, yeah. that he's getting how can you say this man doesn't reach out and bring up enthusiasm well you know There's a few thousand term. people look good <laughs> yeah. on camera but you know yeah. tony ben got plenty of people to rallies in the early 1980s but i don't think uh, we would mistake that 
for the kind of broad-based support that you need to win general elections. So we'll see. But I do think it's uh, it's partly the absence of someone who seemed like they were going to do the Blairite thing with any level of success either. Mm. Uh, because if you're going to sell that kind of message, you need it to seem like you actually are going to trade um, whatever compromises you make for victory. Mm. Because otherwise you just get uh, unprincipled ideological bankruptcy and defeat, which is a pretty bad way to spend a parliamentary cycle. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you started with... The excellent question, is it politically refreshing or is it electoral suicide? It's, I think it's part of this wondrous, curious British system. I thought you were going to say both. No, I was, like, I was like, refreshing suicide? Where is this going? It so. is both. That's exactly <laughs> what it's going. It really wakes you up. In, uh, in, Britain, <laughs> in Britain, you get both refreshment and suicide with Political Jeremy Corbyn. Political suicide, yes. Mm. First with... Um, the refreshing side of it. Look, I mean, despite the fact that the Conservatives ran a lackluster uh, electoral campaign earlier this year and that the Liberal Democrats, their coalition partners, imploded, Labor's campaign was so bland, so banal, so hesitant that they couldn't win. Contrary to the the caricatures in the British press that Ed Miliband was too left to get elected. Ed Miliband simply was too much of an unknown to get elected. Nobody, you know, he, he took selfies and he posed, but unlike his father, who was quite forthright as one of the leading socialist intellectuals in this country. The man who hated Britain. The man who supposedly hated Britain. Put the Daily Mail. Ed simply decided, you know, I can, you know, everybody can embrace me. And he found out, in fact, no, if you don't have some type of substance behind you, you don't necessarily get into number 10. Now, Corbyn brings substance. He is a tribute to his honesty and his forthright approach that views which some people may find very provocative. And I won't say radical, more about that, but provocative. He puts them out there to be discussed. I think that's needed in British politics. I think it's needed because I think for more than a generation, post-Thatcher, through Blair, we've had this caricature of supposedly a polarized Britain that had to be overcome, that you had the, you had the dangers either from the left, the loony left, or you had the dangers from basically an ancient right wing clinging on to British empire. And people played off that for political advantage. And then what you got was this kind of amorphous center that you couldn't really define until we're at a point now when we know we've got cuts to social services. We know we've got problems about distribution of income. We know we've got problems about Britain's position regarding Europe and regarding trying to redefine itself in the world because of this imperial hangover where it still wants to be a great power. Well, Corbyn speaks to that. I mean, I don't consider, as radical, and this is why I pick up the issue, I don't consider advocating, you may not necessarily agree with it, but I don't consider advocating nationalization of railways mm. and redistribution of wealth as radical. It, it, it was certainly profound, unusual when it was pursued after World War II, I think to great success at that point. It was not radical. People did it because they thought it was sensible. And there are reasons to debate whether it's sensible now to talk about that. I think it is not radical, Orland, to talk about scrapping Trident because, frankly, Trident is a massive waste of money, a total waste of money that makes no military sense. 
Um, I disagree with Corbyn in terms of coming out of NATO, but on getting rid of NATO, trying absolutely right, absolutely right in the heartland. So yes, let's discuss it. Let's get it onto the table, and at least it will be, I think, out there to be discussed. That said, here's the second part of it. Then we get electoral suicide, because in this wondrous, curious British system, most of the media and most of the establishment, including a lot of folks in the city, financiers, are going to crush him like a bug. Mm. They are going to replace that sensible discussion with the caricatures which we've already seen, such as, oh my God, he didn't sing the national anthem, therefore he must be a traitor, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> which is, well, by the time you get to the second verse of the national anthem, where you talk about British Empire basically creating bloodshed around the world, it's a bit shaky, folks, mm-hmm. if you really think about it. Um, or the fact that Jeremy Corbyn once said, you know what, we should perhaps talk to Hamas and Hezbollah because there are serious issues that they're concerned with rather than just simply say, oh, they're terrorists and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. That attempt, which will be mobilized to take out any oxygen from a real discussion, will can be compounded by the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, in large part because of his honesty, is politically naive. Uh, he, he simply comes out and says... Instead of just, we'll negotiate with Hamas and Hezbollah, he says, here are some friends from Hamas and who are Hezbollah who come to speak to us. And there you go. Like phrasing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The back row. But he's, that's it. He's not polished. He's not a PR guy. He came in and he won yeah. this election. To be fair, he probably won. had uh, limited grounds to believe that he needed to, uh, to hedge against his future time. leadership of the Labour Party yeah. while, exactly. he was, while he was convening that meeting. <laughs> you know, that years later... If Any more than we should be careful what we say now in case we become Vice-Chancellor this time next year, and wouldn't it be awkward? I think that's shot, folks. <laughs> really, yeah, that's all right. Don't have to go there. All right, so Jeremy comes out of the corner where they were going to let him play... And now he's got this stage to work on, and people are going to take the stage away from him. Mm. I'm afraid that's where I think the outcome's coming. I mean, because frankly, a politician who I think was even smarter than Corbyn, and I like Corbyn, I was his constituent in London when I first came to this country. Uh, I think a politician who was even smarter, who was as honest, who was as forthright, a guy named Tony Benn, was converted into being the Antichrist mm. within a couple of years, <laughs> right? Well, he wasn't. Whether or not you agree with his policies, it wasn't. Where's the hope? It's not just Corbyn. Um, there are people who will be energized to be politically active by this. There will also be a new generation of labor politicians who will come forward. Corbyn's deputy, for example, is a man named Tom Watson. Tom Watson, who never hoped to get power, never expected position, is one of the most forthright people, for example, in what taking if- on Rupert Murdoch and saying this media empire, which is basically devious, which is underhand, which is tearing down the institution of the press, I'm going to challenge him. And he succeeded to a great extent. Tom Watson has been forthright in dealing with economic issues and putting them out there, issues again like Trident, and, and done so in a very polite, constructive way. Well, Watson now is deputy leader. We see where it goes from there. I suspect, actually, he'll be the next leader of the Labor Party after Corbyn. But You heard it here mm, first, yeah. folks. Yeah, one of our MPs from not far away, constituency yeah. around Birmingham, um, from West Bromwich. Yeah. Mm. So Watson is there, and then there's younger politicians whose names will start to come out. Um, not just men, more than half of Corbyn's shadow cabinet is women, something that the press completely swept aside as they said, but your deputy leader and your deputy, your shadow chancellor are not men. Well, his shadow defense secretary is a woman. You know, let's see what those folks can bring to the table. 
So it's the start of a road. I think it's going to end in the short term in labor basically suffering a setback. The question will be whether that new blood in labor says, fine, we've got to see where our future is and reverting back to that bland post-Blairite ground just ain't going to cut it, folks. I mean, it'll be interesting, um, by which I mean possibly a bloodbath, uh, to see it unfold uh, how a party runs its strategy when it knows from day one that there is no hope of winning over much of the press and no worth in investing any energy, you know, because through Kinnock and Blair uh, and, and Brown and Miliband, there was always the belief that it was possible to come to some kind of improved position in the eyes of the press to at least get some kind of fair treatment, and Miliband clearly wanted that. And, you know, they tried to make a virtue of necessity at the end by implying that somehow he had been... Uh, um, you know, uh, he put himself at odds with them, and therefore they'd done him in. But they decided that he wasn't for them uh, b- b- before that, and, and he got hammered. Whereas with, with with these guys, it's like, right, you know, clearly I am going to be portrayed as uh, uh, someone who clubs seals for recreational sport. Um, although that probably would be more popular with the readership uh, of some of these publications and his policies. Um, and you know, that is uh, going to be. Uh, the story of the next five years, just constant, relentless, uh, strategic, deliberate manipulation of the news agenda from whatever angle it's possible to do it, to leave the readership with the impression that this man cannot under any circumstances be trusted, which partly may be the ideological beliefs of people who write those newspapers, but a large part of it is to do with the fact that they're owned by extremely rich people uh, who regard the interests of the extremely rich as priority number one in how the country ought to be structured, and therefore you know, they, they, they want to find the more acceptable reason, because you can't just come out and say that, uh, to, to, to do him in. So but it'll be interesting to see how successful he can be at finding other conduits through to the people. Uh, because it, you never know, it, it could be that if it's so obvious from the very beginning that it is just a concerted, unthinking campaign of demonization, then maybe uh, maybe it has less effect than if, than, than if the press sort of goes through the pretense of seeming like they're covering it reasonably and then makes a recommendation. The other thing I guess I would say is that it... Uh, it will serve a useful function, I think, to have him making some of the arguments he's making because it will oblige the government to actually articulate from first principles their justification for some of the policies that, that they have because um, up until now the opposition has come from uh, a party that's been trying to hedge very much its own uh, position that wants to criticize but wants to avoid the consequences of criticism as well in some ways and therefore you have you know well we eject austerity but we will still be making cuts uh, or you know we don't like wars but of course you know some other wars unspecified may be necessary or you know immigration is important and valuable but at the same time we ought to have not that uh, yeah, exactly so you know when that you know when you have uh, when you have a leader that can't be made out by the conservatives uh, 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 may twist himself like a pretzel by, by putting him in the position where he might seem uh, you know, pro-welfare or pro-immigration because he's like, yeah, sure, I am, uh, what of it? Then you oblige them to actually explain why these things that are understood to be bad things actually are bad things. And, part two, that then means that it... Uh, and this perhaps is something I think is more realistic than, than, than Jeremy Corbyn winning a general election. <coughs> if and when 
uh, he gets uh, soundly defeated in the European and all the local elections and the MPs who fear for their jobs decide the time has come to do him in. Whoever comes in, hopefully a more charismatic version of Labour moderacy than the ones who were available last time, will then have a database of uh, quotations from the Conservative government, hopefully during this period of uh, uh, complacency and elation, in which they may be more inclined to say explicit uh, more controversial things than they would otherwise uh, they would otherwise be obliged to do. So I really hope the next few years is used getting the government to go on record saying smug Thatcherite things out loud to the maximum possible degree so that it's all still there uh, when uh, when someone who seems uh, like more of a saleable proposition comes in to to be their leading critic, it'll be an interesting one two punch. You have both filled me with hope playing the long game as you both are. Uh, I leave this table more enthusiastic than I sat down at it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're you're easily pleased. (laughs) Well, I was pretty disappointed. That's a start. Let me just a couple other markers as well, which which to watch out for. I think the first is is that there's a there's a historical myth out there. It'd be interesting. But the myth is, is that, of course, is that is that labor was doomed throughout the 1980s by its extremist French. That it was coming out of being controlled by the trade unions, the strikes of the late 1970s. And it's partly a myth because the Thatcher government was actually in very serious trouble in its first term because of economic reasons in '82. Then there came a small incident where they fought a war for you know a, a group of people and some rocks and some penguins down in the South Pacific called the Falkland Islands. They won I was that going war. to say, he means the Falklands. There you go. Yeah, well, eventually I give it away. But the, it, of course, that, that was the boost. That was Thatcher's boost in terms of playing the nationalist card. And, and, and she swept into victory in 83 against a guy named Michael Foote, who also didn't dress well, didn't listen to PR folks, etc. Now, had it not been for Falklands, we don't know what would have happened. That's the first point. Now, here we are more than a generation later. So, you know, the conservatives are not exactly inspiring with a wealth of talent right now. Uh, the question is whether the media will crush Corbyn despite that, etc. And I actually will be interested not necessarily to watch the usual suspects in terms of the sun amongst the tabloids, the Daily Telegraph, which effectively is a tabloid masking as a broadsheet the way it treats Corbyn, but the BBC, which effectively was pretty close to irresponsible in some of the ways it covered Corbyn in the past week. Now, do they begin to embrace him as the alternative in the ship? That's going to be part of the dynamic coming forward. I don't think we're going to ever see a Syriza-type movement to shake up politics here as there has been in Greece and Britain. I don't think we're even going to see a, a mini-shake-up as there would be in inner France or in a Spain. But I think what the Corbyn folks might be doing or Labour might be doing is they might be trying to pull an Obama 2008 which gets back to your point, Adam. You go around the conventional media, you go around the traditional media to find new channels of communication, which is possible with the technology that we have today. Can they actually connect up with different blocks of people who don't rely upon what we have been considering as the standard ways of communicating politics, the broadsheet newspapers, the BBC, other privatized broadcasters? I don't know. I... I, I don't think they can. I don't think it's the same as what Obama did in 2008, but it is that possibility just to make it a little bit more interesting than rise and fall of Jeremy within the next 24 months. Yeah. 
I do think if he was a, a, a charismatic 42-year-old giving great speeches about national unity, I would have more hope for it than I, than I, than I, than I, than I do um, about, uh, about, about the likelihood of his, his message being quite so saleable. But I wish, I wish to believe it, and therefore I'll, I'll keep an open mind for a while. But one proviso. It may be that Corbyn breaks away from what has ever done before, which is almost every party, in my experience, has come here has sold itself on one person mm-hmm. as the leader. That's prime. If Corbyn presents himself as part of a group, and he already is talking about listening to others, if he presents himself as part of a group, mm. that's a different dynamic in British politics. Yeah, collective responsibility. They have thought it. Yeah. Okay, good. I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me. I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, as I bothered to look up the other day. So you can follow me there, where I, uh, I, I book prolifically, if that's the right verb. Or at Adam James Quinn on Twitter. Christala, if people want to find you, where would they do it? They can find me on Twitter at, at Yukinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U, for those of you with a pen or a recorder. Or a Twitter account. <laughs> or a rewind button. <laughs> or a rewind button. And a rewind button. Scott. Hit them with your social media presence. On Twitter, it's ScottLucas underscore EA. Or you can always catch me at the best little website for news and analysis in the world, which is at www.eaworldview.com. Great. And you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We're on uh, Twitter at PWorldView. So have a look there. Say things to us. Follow us. We'll, uh, we'll no doubt be expanding in that department over the, over the next while to come. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Cheerio. Cheerio.